we turn in the final chapter then to the book of Job, chapter 42, as we come to our last of our studies in this wonderful uh, book belonging to the the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. And we come to the epilogue uh, in the story and book of Job. Now, an epilogue is a word meaning in addition, and it comes at the end of a a book, uh, and it's often a a comment. Sometimes it's a summary, but on some occasions it has a a twist, an added dimension uh, to the book. This is particularly the case in short stories. Uh, I recommend uh, Frederick Forsyth's book of short stories, wonderful gripping stories, which end with an incredible twist to the story. You thought you've worked out the thread of the story, you've imagined you've solved the puzzle of the story, and then at the end, light is brought to bear on the story which you could never have guessed or imagined. The epilogue is often more than a summary statement, often more than an addition at the end of a story. It often brings richness, understanding, and a new dimension to the whole story. And it's in that sense that the end of the book of Job is an epilogue with a a new and added dimension to it. I I don't know if homeleticians consider the book of Job to be a a sermon. It is well structured and, and filled with illustration But but whether it is classed as a sermon, we are taught never to introduce any twist or new material into the conclusion of your sermon. But here we do have a twist. We do have an unforeseen ending to the book of Job. And it is glorious and filled with hope for us and tremendous comfort for every sufferer in this building this evening. We followed the linguistic outline of the book of Job in our sermons. We begun, as we've indicated, with the prologue in chapters 1 and 2, recounting the historical details of Job, his success, and then the suffering that was brought upon him in the providence of God. We've looked very briefly, we dipped our toe into chapters 3 to 27, those three rounds of verbal boxing, sparring between Job and his three friends uh, as they go back and forward over this main thesis that in this world it's the righteous who are blessed and the wicked who suffer. Job and his friends differ on that position. We thought then of the soliloquy of Job as he speaks about himself in those wonderful chapters 28 to 31 of his previous elevation, success, respect that he had within his community. And all of a sudden this was transformed into suffering, being despised, everything taken from him. And he searches for wisdom in that soliloquy and he finds it in the fear of God. The monologue then that we thought of last Sabbath evening by Elihu, that the younger man full of burning anger, and yet he speaks after the others have been silenced, and he sets out his position and understanding of Job's sufferings, and strikingly, no one replies to him. Probably because 
He was irrelevant in his reasoning and communication. And then we thought today of the, the climax of the book of Job in chapters 38 to 42, when God comes in the whirlwind, the, the scary presence, but yet the presence of God to meet with Job and to talk to Job about the greatness of God and yet the grace of God in, in all his works. And numerous commentators are uncomfortable that the book of Job doesn't end there. They think that saying to any sufferer the greatness of God means that there is a reason for our suffering and the grace of God ensures that he'll be with us in our suffering is enough. To say to, to any sufferer God is great and God is gracious that should be enough. But the epilogue teaches us that we're to say more. We're to say to every sufferer, God in Christ has a glorious future ahead for you. If you're a believer in Jesus, if you're a God-fearer as Job was, the epilogue of the book of Job goes beyond the greatness of God and the grace of God to assure us that there is a glorious future ahead for us. We want to pull out the three dominant strands that, that emerge uh, from this epilogue uh, from uh, the book of Job in verse 7 uh, to the end of this chapter in chapter 42. And the first strand that, that, that emerges uh, in this epilogue, of course, is the revelation of God's character, isn't it? It's the revelation of God's character that he is gracious. Here is God coming and he blesses Job with double of what he had before. Verse number 10, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Here is God revealing his grace. He doesn't just give Job back what he had, but he gives Job back twice as much as what he had. Here is a revelation of who God is. He is a bountiful God. He is a gracious God. Job has depicted him as cruel, as narrow, making Job his target and firing his arrows of suffering at Job one after another, losing his business, losing his family, losing his health, what arrows they were from heaven, fired into the very heart and soul of Job, bringing him immense suffering. And he's spoken of God as as, as against him, as cruel, as vindictive on his innocent servant. And the friends of Job have spoken of God as just, as a righteous God, as one who, who wouldn't punish the innocent. That, that was their theory, that was their position and, and, and insight into God, that he was just. But in all their discussion of Elihu 
and of the friends of Job and of Job himself, there was no mention of the grace of God. And here in the epilogue, in a most outstanding way, God sets out his character here. Yes, he is just. Yes, he is righteous. But he is incredibly gracious. He gives Job twice as much as he had before. And every sufferer and every person and every believer is to lay hold on this revelation of God that he is abundantly gracious. Commentators emphasize, and rightly so in this case, rightly so in this case, that Job's restoration is not merited. His restoration is not merited, but purely the result of the grace of God. Anderson writes, these gifts were gestures of grace, not rewards of virtue. Hartley, in his great commentary, writes, the doubling of Job's estate does not mean that he received a bountiful reward for the endurance of undeserved affliction, but rather that God freely and abundantly blessed him. Isn't this what James means in chapter 5, verse 11, as he comments on the end of Job's experience? You have heard, he says, of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. God gives Job twice as much as he had before, a revelation that he is a God of grace. It's coming up to the the, the big day, you know, getting the finances in order, especially the parents, aren't we? And sometimes parents on the big day at Christmas time I'm talking about is they spend lavishly on their children to make up for the time and the effort that they've expressed throughout the year. They try to show them on that one single solitary day how much they care for them with one big gift, even though they've neglected them for most of the year. That's not how we're to understand the epilogue in Job. It's not that God turns up out of the blue, emerges from the shadows, from an aloof position and comes to Job and at the, the very 70th year of his life gives him double of what he had before but rather that God reveals to Job the type of God he really is. A God who's not narrow. A God who's not cruel. A God who has abundant grace and every day that Job suffered, God was with him, sustaining his suffering servant, walking with him through the low points and the darkness of the deepest night. His abundant grace was with his servant every moment. We talked of Jesus loving Martha and Mary 
when Lazarus was sick. We think of Jesus looking out from the mountain top to the disciples as they were wrestling with the oars and the waves on the Sea of Galilee. We think of God the Father looking down from heaven on God the Son as he suffers on the cross of Calvary. This is our God. He's with Job and he has been with Job every moment of his life. There's a wonderful instance of this attitude in the life of William Carey. He had worked hard in, in, in India with his translation work and had, had progressed wonderfully. And he left uh, all his workings in a shed as he went off on, on particular important business, only to return to discover that his shed had burned down. And all the work of sleepless nights and long hours and, and years of study and translation was gone. In his biography, we read that William Carey knelt down and thanked God for the health he had to do it all again. His God was with him in the depths of his suffering. And God comes in this epilogue to, to rebuke Job, to tell him. Job, who was wondering where he was, wondering what he was doing. God is saying, this is the God I am. A God of abundant grace. And I've been with you every step of the road. It's not only hard in our lives in suffering. It's hard in our workplace when suffering. You go into work tomorrow and, and people will, will cite the, the, the large and, and rising number of deaths in South Korea and say to you, well, where is your God then? Where is his compassion and his grace? Could he not have prevented the deaths of many of those young people there? Why now? Why at this time? They had congregated before. Could he not have prevented them dying? We hold on to this revelation of Job that whatever he's doing whatever the reasons he is an abundantly gracious God the second strand that emerges from the epilogue is the vindication of God's servant uh, this is a point Derek Thomas uh, emphasizes in his, his wonderful commentary on Job that in, in the reading in verses 7 to 9, you, you would have noticed this, how God repeatedly says of Job, he is my servant. He's talking to the, the friends of, of Job who had given him such a hard time through those long chapters 3 to 27. And God's saying, you know, do you realize what you've done? The way you've spoken? your shallow interpretation of the circumstances. That's my servant. You've mistreated. He's my servant. And in this epilogue, it's an incredible strand, isn't it? And not only does God reveal himself and the grace of his heart, but, but he takes the time in the restoration of Job to vindicate his servant. And to, and to show, he, he says of Job, he is the one, verse number 8, he is the one who has, who has spoken of me what is right. My servant. 
And, and this restoration uh, of, of Job is, is evidenced in a, in a couple of ways. Uh, firstly, it's, it's evidenced in a test uh, that was set up by Bildad in chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. Now, now the test uh, which uh, Bildad set up to, to Job was, was this. Job, look, if you are God's servant, he will restore you. And it's as if God says, right, Bildad, that's exactly what I'm going to do. In chapter 8, eight verse 6 and 7, Bildad says to Job, if you are pure and upright, surely then God will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. God says, right, right, Bildad. That's the test that you have set. If Job is pure and innocent and upright, if Job is my servant, I'll restore him. Well, that's exactly what I'll do. And I will restore him far beyond what he ever had in the beginning. God vindicates his servant. The second way he does it is in the long life that he gives. Long life in the Old Testament was a sign of God's blessing And we read of Job in verse 16 that after this, Job lived 140 years. And commentators calculate that Job lived till he was 210. He gets double everything. So he was 70 when his suffering ended. And then double that was 140, giving him 210 years. A sign of the blessing of God. Psalm 91 verse 16, with long life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Here was one evidence in in those times of of being righteous, of being God's servant. They would live long. This phrase at the end, full of days, it was used of Abraham. It was used of Isaac. It was used of David. It was used of Jehoiada. Matthew Henry comments on this, satisfied with living in this world and ready to leave it, full of days, lived out his days to see his great, great grandchildren. Common evidence of a righteous life. And God gives it to Job as another indication that he is my servant and that he was righteous. He vindicates his servant. Politicians, people are interested in, in vindication. Perhaps it's to do with keeping their job. Perhaps it's to do with their general sense of well-being and, and peace of mind. And some go to, to great lengths to do this. And sometimes in this life, God vindicates his people, as he does here. It's important to God. He's concerned 
not only with our heart's relation to him and Job's relation to him, and he has dealt with this in the previous chapters, but he's also concerned with Job's reputation among his peers. That here was his servant, and he vindicates his servant. God doesn't want the judge to condemn the righteous. He doesn't want the judge to vindicate the wicked. He's concerned with justice and and proper understandings of character and people and reputations. And here in this instance, in the time of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, God vindicates for the glory of his own name, his servant. He did the same with Joseph, didn't he? Who was wrongly accused by Potiphar's wife. He did the same with David, who was wrongly accused and pursued by King Saul. He did the same with Jesus Christ, who was wrongly accused by the Sanhedrin. Sometimes in this life, God intervenes and vindicates his servants. We sung from Psalm 37, verse 6. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your innocence like the noonday. Sometimes we consider it not worth replying to accusations that come against us. Other times we attempt to clear matters up and we just can't seem to achieve it. But on some occasions, as Paul did, for the sake of the gospel in Acts 16, when the officials sent to Paul and Silas in prison and say, men, you're free to go. You and I would have run out the gates like a bullet. We would have been off to some other city to spread the gospel and meet with the synagogue in another place. But Paul lingers in the prison and says, no. You send the officials round with their keys and let them publicly open up these gates so that God's servants would be vindicated within the city. God reveals his character in this epilogue. He's abundantly gracious. And God vindicates his servant in this epilogue. And thirdly, in this epilogue, future glory is anticipated. It seems clear that we're to see Job's restoration as an image, as a picture of the future glorification of God's people. Suffering in our life will be followed by glory. Just as Enoch was taken into the presence of God, just as Isaac in Job's time was restored from that suffering which he was on the verge of experiencing into the arms of his loving father, so Job here is restored as an indication, as a picture, as an example of the glorification that lies beyond the life that we live. 
is in this the argument of James as he reflects in chapter 5 on this passage, writing to believers in the first century who were suffering unjustly. You have seen the end of the Lord, he says. We count them blessed, he writes, who endure. Job, he persevered through the suffering, through the the opposition and and, and misunderstanding of his friends. And he, he enters into this era of rest and blessing and prosperity. So James says, this is the pattern. This is the model. We will suffer for a time. And then we too will enter in to the rest and prosperity of the Lord. Matthew Henry writes, the extraordinary prosperity which Job was crowned with after his afflictions was intended to be to us Christians a type and a figure of the glory and happiness of heaven. Henry emphasizes the twice in verse 10. And he goes on to to speak about how much more wonderful heaven will be than anything of the great things of this earth. This, he says, will be more than double to all the delights and satisfactions we now enjoy. Anderson agrees with Matthew Henry and he considers Job's restoration to be a, a kind of resurrection. He says, a resurrection in the flesh. He was effectively a goner. Now he's restored to great glory. And so all of God's people who die will rise again. This mortal will put on immortality. Michael Lewis, in his book, The Fifth Risk, writes about Donald Trump and and his uh, escapades and and, and one instance promoting his cronies uh, to positions of of great power. And he goes into great detail to to analyze these promotions to positions of power and influence and wealth. But, But he doesn't answer the question, why? But the epilogue does here. Why is Job exalted? Why is he restored? Why is he given double of what he had before? Because it's teaching us that in the life of the Christian, glory awaits us after suffering. And we can say to the Christian sufferer, Not only is God great, not only is he gracious now, but there's a future glory waiting for you beyond this life. But you're saying, wait a minute, just just, just wait a minute. Look now at this verses uh, that we have here, verse number 13. Yes, I get number 12. And I looked at chapter 1 and 2. He had 7,000 sheep and now he's 14,000. He had 3,000 camels in chapter 1 and 2. He's 6,000 now. He had 500 yoga of oxen. Then he's 1,000 now. 500 female donkeys then. 1,000 now. But what about verse 13? He had also seven sons and three daughters. That's not double, you see. 
He had seven sons and three daughters in chapter 1. But here he's got seven sons and three daughters now after his suffering. That's not double. Do you know what the answer is? It's a brilliant answer, isn't it? That the seven sons and three daughters that he had before, they were living in the presence of God, waiting for him. So he had seven sons and three daughters here on earth, but also seven sons and three daughters in heaven. Double all he had. His sheep were gone. His camels were gone. They were annihilated. They existed no more. But his seven sons and three daughters lived on in the presence of heaven. The revelation of the grace of God given to Job, assuring him that God had always been there. This is his character. This is his heart. This is what he does. He's been depicted as cruel, as just a God of justice. But he's a God of abundant grace. The vindication of his servant. Job was vindicated, but God kept him from being vindictive. He made him pray for his friends. And if we pray for our enemies, for those who've opposed us, it's hard to be vindictive to them. Vindicated, but preserved from being vindictive. And looking forward, no doubt Job was, as we can too, to the glory of heaven. However low we sink, however frail our body becomes, However dark our experience, the glory of heaven awaits every believer. The whole of scripture teaches us from its beginning right to its glorious conclusion that beyond this life of suffering, rest and glory is assured. So let us learn from the prologue that our life can change dramatically in a moment. Let us learn from the dialogue that close friends can misinterpret our circumstances completely and be completely wrong. Let us learn from the soliloquy in Job that wisdom is in the fear of God. Let us learn from the monologue of Elihu not to speak when we're angry. Let us learn from the climax that God is great and knows the reason for our suffering. And God is gracious and is with us in it. And let us learn from the epilogue that heaven follows suffering. And if you're not yet a Christian, suffering will follow suffering.